This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. I am glad that you're here, and we want to open our Bibles, and we're going to move right into Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. One of the clearest statements of the gospel is in Romans 3. And another one will be in Romans chapter 5. The end of 4 and 5 will be another very, very clear statement of the gospel. So uh, why don't we have prayer together? And one or two coming in, getting their seats, and then we will plunge in and go. All right, let's bow our heads. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you again that we can open your word. And as we plumb the depths of this, uh, we pray that Jesus will be our real teacher. The Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth will be here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, he starts out with chapter 3. I need to open my guide here, chapter 3. He opens up with chapter 3, and he starts with these words. Verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew? In other words, if everybody, if God is not partial, and everybody is under the law, so to speak, then what advantage does the Jew have? And then his, here is his answer, or what profit is circumcision? Verse 2, much in every way... Because of them were committed the oracles of God or the truth of God. So is it an advantage? Is it an advantage to have um, the law of God? Is that an advantage? Why is it an advantage? Because it tells us how to live. It's the law of life. And I'm going to talk more about why it's the law of life and not arbitrary. So to have, for the Jewish people to have both the ceremonial law as well as the moral law, is a huge advantage because in the ceremonial law was held in essence the gospel and the law of God was the way of life, the way of truth. So uh, there, there was a lot of advantage there. Uh, once again, this is a note if you have it in your book and I'm under Romans chapter 3 and I'm looking at the note under number 1 verses 1 and 2. Once again, Paul is in no way rejecting God's law. In fact, he's lifting it up. The law of God serves a very important function. Often people down the law or put it down when they should be downing its misuse. It is not the law that it's bad. It's the abuse or misuse of the law of God that leads to problems. The law is to help us in our sinful condition to understand how much we need to trust the Lord. All right, let's look at, uh, let's look at verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Who are the some who do not believe that is referring there? He's not referring to the Gentiles. He's referring to Jews. Some of the Jews didn't believe. And because some of the Jews didn't believe doesn't mean that God is not going to be faithful. Just because everybody didn't believe doesn't mean that it's going to nullify God's plan. So will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And his, his um, answer is certainly not. I like the old King James that says, God forbid. Uh, 
Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as is his written. And this is a quote from Psalm 53, and it's a mysterious quote. And in one sense, it's a quote most people don't think about. But here it comes. That you, who's the you here? God is the you. That you, God, may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So why is God being judged here? Why is it important that even though there are some people that are unfaithful and God judges them in the end of time for their unfaithfulness, why is God being judged and what reasons is God, for what reason is God being judged? And why is it important for God to be judged on his judgment? If God, if God takes people that are in the end of time and he pronounces judgment against them, why is it important that God's judgment be judged? Oh. Yeah, was it just? If it's not just, what does that kind of problem, does that produce for God and his children? Oh, okay. And what's the devil out to do? If the devil had his way, no one would trust the Lord. Am I right? So the reason that God's judgment is is judged, the reason God's judgment is looked at, and that's one reason there's a thousand years, uh, the millennium. Why is that millennium there? It's for this very reason. We'll be able to look and see the reasons why God was just in making the decisions that he made. And all the information is going to be there. There's not going to be any information that's not there. It's all going to be there. So the, the, um, the answer to that I get the right uh, place there. Uh, in verse 3 and 4, number 5, it's number 5 under that chapter 3. Why do you think it's important for God to be found righteous when he's judged? And here's the answer. Because fairness or justice breeds trust. Does God want us to trust him through the ceases ages of eternity? Are we going to be able to trust him through the ceases ages of eternity if we feel that his justice is unjust? So the only way that God can make sure that we understand that his justice is just and build trace, trust between us is to open the books. So he opens the record and you have the right to go there, push the button or whatever it is, and you can get Aunt Susie's whole life or Uncle Bill's whole life there and you'll find why God said no. Can't take you to the kingdom of heaven. Is, and that very ability to do that, that your trust in your heavenly Father is built. Because the just will always live by faith. Now, I want to go down to, uh, I, I threw a, another text in here. And for sake of time, I'm not going to read Ezekiel 18, 21 to 24. Ezekiel 18, 30 to 31 but I want to talk about it just a little bit. In Ezekiel 18, you find something very interesting going on. Israel is pictured as being very unhappy with God's justice. Because God said this. 
He said, if a person is righteous all of his days and he ends up sinning at the end, he's going to be lost. I'm paraphrasing. Or if a person is wicked all of his days and at the very end turns to God, he's going to be saved. And the Israelites said, that's not fair. Why did they say it wasn't fair? What? what where were they coming from to say it wasn't fair? Well, I'll tell you where. Because in their concept, your good deeds, it was like a balance. You've seen those balances. That your good deeds had to outweigh your bad deeds. So if all your life you had more righteous deeds than you had bad deeds, you should be saved. If you had more evil deeds than righteous deeds you should be lost. So they said it's not fair for a person's wicked all of his life and at the very end he turns righteous and his wicked deeds are still more than his righteous deeds, he should still be lost. If it's just the other way around and he's been righteous all of his life, but at the very end he turns wicked, he should still be saved because his deeds, his good deeds outweigh his bad deeds. How much of the world still thinks that way? Yeah, but you, I mean, the, the average John Doe that you meet in the street out here, if, he doesn't, if he's just kind of a Christian in name, he'll tell you, well, you know, I, I, I've been a good person, so God should accept me. Now, here, here's the problem. Here's the problem. I'll use my Southern English. There ain't no good person. You hearing me? There is not any righteous, not one. All are under condemnation. Even if, that, even if this Israel's complaint against God were true, it's still not the basis on which God saves a person. What is the basis on which God saves a person? Okay, you're, you're, not, you're not too, too far, but let me, let me cross-reference Matthew 7, 16 to 20. And I'm not going to turn there for sake of time. What does Matthew 7, 16 to 20 tell us? It tells us that a good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. So is God going to save bad trees? What's he going to do with bad trees? He's going to cut them down, that's right. What will he do with good trees? So here's the basis on which a person is saved. They have to have a good heart. You have to have good affections. You have to love what God loves. If you don't love what God loves, God can't save you. So that's why a, a wicked person can be converted in the end, even though their, their bad deeds outweigh their good deeds, they can be converted in the end and changed, and they now become a good tree because they have a change of heart. And who gives them a change of heart? It's the born-again experience. So if you're born again and you've got a new heart, God will save you. But let's say you've been a righteous man all your life, and now you've had a good heart, but at the very end you decide to throw it away and become a wicked person. God's not going to save you. Why? You don't have a good heart. You better die with a good heart. Somebody should have said amen.
You better be ready for Jesus to come with a good heart. And somewhere I want to tell you the difference between the, I love our Baptist friends, our Baptist friends and the Adventists. There are a lot of Adventists today who are going back to being Baptist. Because they don't understand the uniqueness of the Seventh-day Adventist message. And I, if, I, if I mess up, you remind me that I need to come back to that. And I'm going to come back to that at some point. I'll tell you the difference and why there is a huge difference uh, here in the end of time. Okay, here's the note. If you, look on, uh, if you look under number eight, God pleads with Israel to possess a new heart. By the way, he ends this whole passage by asking them to repent and to have a new heart. That's what he says in Ezekiel. God pleads with Israel to possess a new heart and a new spirit. For the only way for sinners to possess a new heart and a new spirit is by faith in Christ. Wouldn't God be unjust to destroy a person with a faithful heart, just as a farmer would be foolish to destroy a good fruit tree? The reason a farmer keeps a good fruit tree is that he enjoys good fruit. Now listen to this. The reason God keeps alive a person with a heart of unselfish love is because God enjoys good deeds. Is heaven going to be full of good deeds? The only way you can become a good fruit tree is to get a, good, a new heart. And the only way to get a new heart is to trust the Savior to give you one by faith in Christ Jesus. Is that clear? All right, let's go, uh, let's go down, uh, let's look a little bit more here. This is going to get uh, very interesting. It's already interesting. Uh, let's go to Romans uh, 3, looking at verses 5 to 7. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? I speak as a man, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Paul goes on just a little bit of a sidetrack here. And because he's being, uh, he's being Jesus was... Uh, Jesus was slandered this way, Paul is slandered this way, and the Jews were coming up to him and saying, listen, if you teach people that they're saved by faith and they're saved by grace, uh, they're, they're just going to be bad. They won't be good. Uh, and so you better teach them that they're saved by their works, otherwise they won't think that they, they, they won't be good. You follow, you follow the logic, the reason uh, they have there. Um, and the other thing is that he was saying, he's, he's countering an argument here. If, if, if I'm not faithful and I, and I produce evil, even though I've known God's will, does, and then God shows his justice by condemning me in the final judgment, and I go back and say, God, that's not fair because now everybody's seen how righteous and good you are by condemning me, so my being bad made you look good. That's basically what's saying here. And Paul is counteracting that by saying, that's, oh, these are my words, that's stupid. 
God is being just because God is just. And just because you've been bad doesn't mean that, that, that you can take some kind of credit for God looking good because he had to judge you because of your own foolishness. In other words, it's your own free will that got you where you were. Am I right? Because God didn't force you to go there. All right, anybody okay on that? Because I want to I move on then to, um, to uh, verse 8. No, I'm sorry. I'm going to go to verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. For as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And he goes down and he gives another list of evil here. Look at verse 13, talking about wicked people. Their throat is an open tomb. I remember my kids were little. We were in Michigan at Heartfelt Pines. It's not too far from Campo Sabo. And they have some of the original huge white pine trees that kind of look like West Coast trees. Anyway, we were there in the park. And I don't know how old my kids were. They, they were probably, oh, five and seven, something like that. And so it was Sabbath afternoon. And we were walking and we were walking by side, um, a ditch there alongside the road. And I looked over there and my kids looked over there and there was a snake. And the snake had caught a frog. And it was swallowing the frog. And my daughter looked at that and her eyes got big. And, and she just didn't know what to think about that awful scene of that snake. It reminded me, though, of this text. What are sinners like? What are they like? Their throat is an open grave. They're not just content on destroying themselves, but they want to destroy other people, too. Am I right? Isn't that what the devil is doing? And uh, you can read about the, in the story, uh, I think it's in Great Controversy. Maybe, no, it's in uh, Patriarchs and Prophets about how the devil went to tempt Adam and Eve and the wrestling and the fear that he had of bringing on them the misery and the suffering that he was already into, and yet he went ahead and did it anyway. Why is it that sin loves company? Throat is an open grave. Now, it ends with something that we don't like to talk about today. If you look at the end at verse 18, it gives a reason why all these people act that way. And what does it say? There is no what? There's no fear of the Lord before their eyes. Now, I want to stop here and talk about the fear of God for a moment. It's probably one of the most misunderstood statements. In other words, if these people have had the fear of God, they wouldn't be that way. But because they have no fear of God, they're this awful description that you find with uh, verses 10 to 18. Why is the fear of God so important? So let me give you a text. Out of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The what of wisdom? The beginning of wisdom. Let me give you another, another one. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, we live in a day and age when people say, you're not going to make me afraid of God. I'm not afraid of God. Really? High-handed sinners sticking their fist in the face of the Almighty? 
And they're not afraid. You go everywhere. Oh, God loves you. Well, God does love you, does he not? So how does God love us and still how is there a healthy fear of God? What is the fear of God? And why does it say it's the beginning of wisdom? I'd like to suggest to you that the first lesson that God taught Adam and Eve was to fear God. He didn't say in that first lesson, God really loves you. He loves you so very much. At least it's not recorded that way. But what does he say? You better not eat of that fruit. Because if you eat of it, you will surely... So the first lesson that God taught in the Garden of Eden was to fear God. You may not like it. People may not like it. But that's the fact. So why is the fear of God a preserving power to keep us from evil? Well, let me explain what I mean by the fear of God, and I think what God means by the fear of God. God is saying, Adam and Eve, I want you to know something very important. My law is a way of life, and I'm going to talk more about that later. But if you disobey my law, I will have to pronounce judgment on you. So what is better, for God to tell them the truth or just leave them in ignorance? I think it's better for God to say, look, here's the facts. I'm your heavenly father. I created you. I'm your creator. I created the heavens and the earth. But it's necessary that you be obedient. And if you're disobedient, then there are consequences to, the disobe I mean, to your disobedience. I have a parent or two or three in here, perhaps. Do you ever tell your children what the consequences are? Why do you do that? When you do that, when you say, if you do that, this is what's going to happen, you are teaching the fear of father or the fear of mother. Is that right? Is that bad? Or is that good? I think it's good. I think it's good. I'm sorry. Even though the kids might not see it that way. Yeah, the kids may not see it that way, but the, the facts are that there is, there is love in that teaching them that there are consequences to that behavior because you're telling them what the consequences are in order to keep them from experiencing the evil. Does that make sense? Would God want, did God want Adam and Eve to experience the evil? That he wanted them to experience the consequences of evil? No, he wanted his love, his heart yearned for them to never have to go through that experience. Is there any parent that wants their kid to become a drug addict? So what do you do? You tell them the consequences. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I'd like to suggest to you that in the temptation, what Satan went after was Eve's fear of God. What does he say? 
Has God said? Which started to cast doubt. And then the next step, once he got her thinking that way, his next step was, you shall not surely die. He succeeded in getting Eve to lose her fear of the consequences that God would do what he said he would do. And the minute she lost her fear of God, she sinned. It's the next step. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But the fear of God comes out of his everlasting love. And it's the, it's the, I saw your hand, I'm coming. It is the everlasting gospel. How does Revelation 14 start? Fear God. And so why does the everlasting gospel given in the end of time start with the fear of God if the fear of God is such an awful thing? The fear of God comes out of God's love to help us understand the consequences. The gospel is to deliver us, hallelujah, from the consequences of what sin has done to us. And that's the good news. But if we don't take advantage of the gospel, certainly we shall face the judgments of God. And that's what our world does not want to hear. They do not want to hear that there is a certainty of God's judgments. It's much easier to believe that God is so nice and so sweet and so kind. And he is, but he's not indulgent. And I'll tell you why he cannot be when I get to Romans chapter 7. I'll tell you why he absolutely cannot be. Because out of God's love comes not just his mercy, but it also comes his justice. Because one saves the sinner and the other preserves the universe. Okay, you had a question or comment. Speak right up. All right, so based on what you've said, to my understanding, the fear of God is basically you living your life knowing that there's an almighty being who holds you accountable for everything that you do. That's right. Now, I'll add, I'll, I'll add something to that. There's an almighty being who will hold all of us accountable, but he loves us so very much he doesn't want to hold us accountable. So he gave us his only begotten son so that we can be free. That's the gospel. We're coming back. We're coming right into it right now. Are you still with me? So we, you see the fear of God right there. And, and now we're going to start right into um, verse 20, 21. And this is starting that statement, one of the clear statements of the gospel that we have. Verse 21, and um, I'm at verse 16. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and, come and fall short of the glory of God. That is so true. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's a very, very clear statement, but I want to I take this uh, apart here just a little bit, in a, not in a bad way, in a, in a very good way. Um, let's, look at, let's start back and take a look at verse 20, 21 for just a moment. What does it mean that the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is now revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets? A lot of people say, oh, in fact, I, I mentioned this earlier. I had a, uh, someone who wrote me not long ago, emailed me and said, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reveling in Jesus because I'm apart from the law. I don't have to worry about the law um, in so many words. And a lot of people take it that way. So what does it mean that the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law? Well, let me ask the first question. And the first question is, is the righteousness of God revealed in his law? Yes or no? No question about that. You can prove that any way that you want. God's righteousness, His goodness, His will, His plan for our lives and His moral code for us is all revealed in His law. Now, what does it mean when it says that in Christ, His righteousness is revealed apart from the law? Why does it need to be revealed apart from the law? And the next question is, is the righteousness revealed in Christ the same as the righteousness revealed in the law? Or is there a difference between the righteousness revealed in Christ and the righteousness revealed in the law? And the answer to that is no. Righteousness is righteousness. The will of God is the will of God. Thou shalt not kill is the same in the Ten Commandments as it is in the living Christ. That makes sense? So why did we need it to be revealed apart from the law? Any fishermen in here? A fisherman? You're a fisherman. Okay. I just have somebody to back me up here a little bit. Does a fish need oxygen, yes or no, to live? Do all of you in here need oxygen, land creatures that we are? Do you need oxygen? Is the oxygen that the fish uses the same as the oxygen that we use? Is there any difference in the oxygen? Still oxygen. Okay, still oxygen. Now, if I put the fish in the water, he does fine. Am I right? If I pull the fish out of the water, is he still surrounded by oxygen, yes or no? But what happens if he's out of the water? He dies. Am I right? 
if I have only the law that reveals to me the righteousness of God, I'm going to be like that fish out of water. Do I need the righteousness of God? Is it necessary for my life? Can I exist without the righteousness of God? It's impossible. But what's it going to do to me? It's going to kill me. Why is it going to kill me? Because my brother just said it over here. It's in a form that I cannot use. That makes sense? But if I put the fish in the water, the oxygen is now in a form what? He can use it. Am I right? He can use that oxygen. That's what has happened for me and for you. If we have just the law, it's righteousness. We need it. We desperately need it. But it's going to kill us because it, we cannot, it cannot do anything for us. But if you put me in Christ and you put Christ in me, now I have the righteousness of Christ, but I'm surrounded with him who not only makes it possible for me to know righteousness, but now I can absorb the righteousness because he's become my righteousness. He wraps me with his robe of righteousness, like the water wraps the fish with oxygen. It's the same righteousness. And that's why many of our friends really make a terrible mistake. They think that somehow the law is bad, that because it's been revealed apart from, from the law, that, the, that, that somehow the righteousness over there is not as good as this righteousness. There's no difference in the righteousness, except that in this form, we can have it and absorb it and live, praise God. But over there, I'm going to die. Any questions? Okay, now let's, let's watch this because this becomes, becomes really important. Now let's look at verse 22. Even the righteousness is revealed apart from the law, even the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Christ. So how do you get that righteousness? Through faith in whom? In Christ. And why is that going to be important? We're going to get down to that word perpetuation in just a second. And on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Anybody that's going to be saved is going to have to be in Christ. They're going to have to accept Christ by faith. Verse 24, when you accept Christ by faith, being justified freely without cost by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a perpetuation by his blood. Be sure I don't have a quote here. What does it mean at this point? To be justified freely. How is that accomplished? I'd like to go now to the word propitiation. It's a big word. And a lot of people don't like it. It's the same word. It's the same word that was used by the pagans to offer a sacrifice that appeased their angry gods. 
perpetuation. If you wanted to perpetuate a heathen to God, you offered him a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was supposed to appease his anger and get him on your side. They could become so desperate that they would sacrifice their own children in order to be able to get this God to be satisfied. But our God is not like a heathen God. But is there something to be satisfied here? What is there to be satisfied with our God? Justice. Is God just? Is he a righteous judge? And if I sin against him, are judges in a sinful land a bad thing? Talking about just judges. Why are judges important in a sinful society? Okay? Okay. In our society, judges enforce the law. In other words, here's the law that society agrees, agrees on, and the judge says, you broke the law, and we are not going to be satisfied until you are corrected or punished. All right? Are judges bad? Well, I, I'm talking about just judges. Yeah, they're corrupt judges. I understand that. But I'm talking about in, in concept. Yeah, judges play an important role in our society. How many of you want to appear before the judge and be guilty? So there is such a thing as the fear of the judge, am I right? That's why everybody stands up when the judge comes in the cl- into the courtroom. Because there's a... I mean, you don't want to make this guy upset with you for nothing, am I right? I mean, you don't, you don't want to be stupid. So the judge plays a good role... So God is playing a good role, too. So there is something to satisfy, and that is there's got to be a satisfaction of God's justice. So how does this differ? It differs in the fact that these heathen gods are not just. There's a whole different thing here. But there is a, there is a situation, in essence, where, this, where the God of heaven asks for satisfaction. So how... Are our sins satisfied? It's through perpetuation. How are the sin, how, how does a heathen God, if you please, how is he satisfied? With a sacrifice, an offering, am I right? The question is, the difference is, who offers the offering in a heathen sacrifice? The person, am I right? With our God, who offers a sacrifice? Huge difference. You don't offer the sacrifice. You cannot satisfy the justice of God. The only one that can satisfy the justice of God is God himself. So God looks at you and he knows that there's nothing you can bring. And he loves you and he doesn't want to lose you. 
So what does he do? He sends his only begotten son to Calvary's cross and therefore satisfies his own justice. That's the essence of the gospel. That God sacrificed, here it is. I got this, if you want to read a really good treatise on this, you read John Stott, he's just passed away not too long ago. John Stott, not a Seventh-day Adventist, but very good thinker, called the cross of Christ. And John Stott uses almost the same words as Ellen White uses in Desire of Ages. And here it is. It's the essence of the gospel. And it's this holy ground that God sacrificed himself to his own justice in order to set us free. Let me say it again. That God sacrificed himself to his own justice in order to set us free. Now, there are some atonement ideas that have come in that reject this. And their rejection of it is, they say, oh, how can you, how can you do that? I mean, God is... Uh, uh, God, doesn't, God doesn't require you to have a sacrifice to come to him to appease his justice. We're asked to just forgive people so God could just forgive us without having to have a perpetuation. John Stott's answer to that is, we are not God. And all of our forgiveness of each other is based on his sacrifice of himself that makes it possible for me to forgive one another. Follow that. And the laws we break are the laws he makes. God is not our equal. He's, he's sovereign. He's creator. You don't take a, your heart doesn't beat another beat except by his divine power. You don't take another breath without his divine power. Um, or they'll say, well, you know, God is just love. You, uh, you don't really, Jesus didn't die on the cross to pay for our sins. Now, this is in the Adventist church in certain places that I will go unnamed. And they're teaching this. That, that Jesus didn't die to pay for your sins. There's no penalty for sin. God just forgives you. That's it. And they don't like this word perpetuation. Because they say God is loving and he's kind and he's good and he just, just overlooks it. You know. Just says it's okay. Really. I don't think sin can be that easily dismissed. If we don't dismiss sin that easily in our own societies, how can the God of the universe just simply dismiss it as though it's nothing? And then they say, well, God wouldn't, God would be, God's mean, you, you're, you're, you have a mean God because he sends his only begotten son and so he sacrifices him in order to take care of you. 
Really? According to my Bible, Jesus volunteered for the, for the mission. Ellen White says that three times he went into the Father because the Father didn't want to let him go. It's a horrible risk that Jesus took. But the Father finally let him go. Jesus came here of his own free will. Remember Gethsemane? Peter draws his sword. What does Jesus tell Peter? Put your sword up, Peter. Why? I've got 12 legions of angels on standby, one legion for every disciple, 12 legions of angels on standby. They can deliver me any moment. Jesus went to Calvary's cross voluntarily. He said, Lord, if it's possible, I don't want to drink this cup, but I will drink it if there's no other way. And the truth is there was no other way. If there had been another way, Paul will argue later, if you could be saved by just keeping the law, God would not have sent His only begotten Son to Calvary's cross. The only way God could redeem us was to allow His Son to go through that horrible experience of Calvary's cross. The only way. So God sent His only begotten Son. Some people say, well, God doesn't have any wrath. He doesn't have any anger. Really? I was, I don't know how old I was. I was watching the times going on me again. Here it goes. But I was, um, my brother and I were little guys. I mean, real little guys. I don't know, seven, eight, something like that. We were out playing in my grandmother's big sandy driveway with our little cars. That'll date me really good. We were up playing there, and I had a sweet, wonderful grandmother. She's sleeping, waiting for the Lord to come. But all of a sudden, Grandma came running, screaming out towards us with a hoe in her hand. I wasn't afraid. I was just amazed. Because I'd never seen Grandma that way before. And Grandma comes out there, and she takes the hoe, and she comes up beside us, and she starts beating the ground with that hoe. And pretty soon I saw what Grandma was mad about. It was a snake. It was a copperhead. I grew up in North Carolina, and copperheads are not to be played with, particularly with little boys. And Grandma cut that snake into a thousand pieces. Well, I don't know how many pieces she actually cut it into, but when she got done with it, so question and answer. Why was Grandma so angry at the snake? I'd like you to suggest to you that her anger towards a snake was in comparison to her love for her grandboys. Does that make sense? Since a snake was a danger, she didn't have any intrinsic problem with the snake. She just didn't want the snake to hurt her grandboy, and the snake was a danger. And she was, she was mad at the snake for that reason. Well, let me give you another illustration. This is a true story, too. Uh, and I don't know the, all the particulars, but I know it's a true story. But a, a young missionary couple went to a land to be missionaries. And this was a land, and I don't know the country, that had some very bad poisonous snakes. One day, they had a new baby. And the baby was in its cradle or, or little bed in its room. 
I don't know how old the baby was, maybe six months, maybe a year. And one morning, the mother goes into the nursery, and she screams. And her husband comes running, only to see one of these terribly poisonous snakes coiled on the baby and sliding off and slithering into some crack or something. And they rushed to pick up the baby, and the baby had been bitten and was dead. I don't like stories that end that way either, but I want to use it for an illustration. If you were a father, if the father had seen the poisonous snake crawl into the nursery, what would the father have done? Would he have said, well, bless your heart, I really don't want to hurt you, snake. Or somebody would say, well, couldn't he just put it in a cage and capture it? The only way the snake will not become a threat is for it to be dead. Am I right? A dead snake is not a threat. I'd like to suggest to you that if the father had seen the snake crawl in there and he'd done the same thing as my grandmother did, he'd have grabbed something and killed that snake. And I think that's what any father would do. And if you wouldn't, I want to talk to you after the meeting. It's part of his job to protect his family. So he's going to kill that snake. I'm going to tell you something. When sin crawled into God's nursery, which is his universe, at some point God's going to kill it. And if he doesn't, it'll kill the universe. You have to understand that God's anger is an anger towards that which will destroy his children. And the challenge that we have is if God has a problem, I know some theologians don't like that, it's okay, is that God's children are also the snakes. That's why Christ was lifted up as a serpent, not because Christ was a snake, but he took on, became sin for us. Why? So that when he became sin for us, what is God naturally going to do when confronted with sin? Let me tell you, if you walk into the presence of God without a mediator in a sinful condition, the results are predictable. You die. He will not tolerate. Just as a father will not tolerate a poisonous snake in the nursery, God will not tolerate sin. He will not do it. So when Jesus became that serpent, he became sin, he opened, exposed himself to the justice of God. Did he deserve that? And God's judicial Anger was then focused on his son, and he allowed these lawless men to put Christ to death. They treated him as they deserved, so that he might treat us as he deserved. Christ became the propitiation. He became the one who satisfied. He was provided by God himself. 
And when I accept Christ as my Savior, as I accept Him as my substitute, I'll get more into substitution a little later, as my substitute, then I am covered forever. And in Christ, His righteousness changes my heart. It changes my affection. It makes a new creature out of me. And the righteousness that I could not absorb from just the law, I now have put in my heart and my affections by Christ who covers me with His righteousness, pays the price and sets me free. Better yet, He sets me before God Himself. Justified. Free. Because now when when God the Father sees me, when the justice of God looks at me, He no longer sees me. He sees the one who paid the price. I love that old song. Jesus paid it all. So aren't you glad that the righteousness of God was revealed apart from the law? Hallelujah. I've got to give you a break. Five minute break. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.